It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. It's September 2nd, 2009. I'm in one of those moods. <laughs> Every now and then when I'm doing my research, everything comes to a, 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 a head. And it's it's got to be taken care of. I've got, I've got to cathartically get things off my chest. Kind of reviewing the stuff that we've gone over this, this past week here at Fighting for the Faith. And I feel like I need to have a change of pace and do something a little bit different today. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I'm your servant in Jesus Christ. And this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which is to get you to think critically, to get you to think biblically, and to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. I I kid you not, things could not be crazier out there. It's as if this creeping fog has uh, overtaken uh, much of the church, and uh, I, I feel like I'm screaming into the fog, wake up come on you people you cannot possibly be falling for this stuff anyway today's edition of fighting for the faith is um something well every now and then i i I do a think along uh episode today's edition of fighting for the faith is in that vein it's a think along if you would and um Every now and then, you know, I I, I go back and no, not every now and then, it, regularly I go back and I review what we're doing here at Fighting for the Faith and think, what could I be doing better? What you know, what what can make the program better? What could you know, what is it that really needs to be a regular feature here at Fighting for the Faith? We you know, we do news, we do uh, uh, we do sermon reviews, uh, we do a little satire, we do biblical teaching and stuff like that. And uh, from time to time, you know, I go, all right, is is this working? Is this effective? Is this is this really doing what I hoped it would do? Now, being that this is a radio program, and for the most part, the feedback that I get from people is via email, Facebook, and Twitter. Um, those are not exactly what I would consider to be um, the 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 most robust of feedback systems. Although it does provide me with some feedback. Um, so a lot of times it's just try this and try that. So uh, yeah, I'm, again, today's a think along, uh, episode. Therefore I'm, you're thinking along with me. Today's episode is, um, dedicated to the theme of, uh, it's entitled the suicide of thought. As I research, as I read, as I listen, uh, to what's happening to Christianity today, I'm convinced that uh, that Christianity has committed mental suicide. Um, it's as if we somehow have come to the conclusion that God didn't create our brains and that they are not to be used uh, in God, in worshiping God and understanding God whatsoever. And uh, funny enough, I have been rereading the book Orthodoxy by uh, G.K. Chesterton, and he's got an entire chapter in his book. Uh, entitled The Suicide of Thought. And uh, funny enough, uh, we are going to be playing uh, large portions of that today in the normal spot where we would have our sermon review. In fact, I don't even know how the timing on today's program is going to work um, because uh, the the things I want to cover and kind of counter with just some solid thought, um, I I have no idea how long it's going to take. This is one of those programs where coming to the microphone 
and and uh, turning it on and and playing the uh, program music. You know, I I have no idea where we're gonna land today. I just don't know. Uh, <laughs> so I apologize if you were looking for a little bit more structured. Believe me, there is structure to today's program. Um, and our theme is the suicide of thought. And I want to kind of walk you through some of the things that I'm thinking about and, and solicit your feedback. Get, I, I would really like your feedback today. And, uh, I, like I said, I'm going to provide some counterpoints. If you were on Facebook and Twitter earlier, then you saw that today I said you're going to need a copy of today's Fighting for the Faith hymnal. That has uh, it has the lyrics to two hymns. This is a, a, a vital part of what we're going to be doing today, and uh, and so uh, you know, be ready with that. If you don't have, in fact, there's four ways that I'm aware of that you can get it. If you're a friend of mine on Facebook, go to my wall. You can grab it there. You can go to fightingforthefaith.com, and uh, and today's program is October second, two thousand and nine. And uh, you can uh, look for the the download link there. You can get it on Twitter if you're following me on Twitter. Um, or if you subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, then you'll notice that t- with today's uh, uh, edition of Fighting for the Faith, there will also be a PDF document entitled Fighting for the Faith uh, uh, Hymnal for two th- uh, February, se- uh, February 2nd, September 2nd, 2009. So those are the four ways that you can get it. Anyway, you're going to need it. And so here's, again, this is a think-along episode. Therefore, uh, I kind of want you to think along with me here for a second. Uh, Peter Rollins, I don't know if you all are familiar with this guy. Peter Rollins is uh, one of the up-and-coming stars in emergence uh, publishing, emergence thinking. He is... Uh, he's, uh, he, I think he's Irish and, uh, he, uh, he, his book, uh, an Orthodox heretic, it just, I, 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 I've been reading it and it's, it, it might, my brain hurts because this guy engaged in, engages in just what I consider to be really kind of dumb juvenile thinking. And what he's, what he's doing is he's using reason to argue against reason it's a, it's the suicide of thought. Um, it, it, um, it's as if you're trying to use life to create death. It's just this ridiculous thing. And he was recently on a podcast called Something Beautiful. And I want you to listen to carefully to what this man says. You'll, you'll, you'll immediately, uh, understand what it is that I'm talking about as far as my brain hurting and, and, and what this guy's up to. So, here is um, this is Adele Sackler uh, and uh, Peter Rollins having a, a conversation, if you would. And I want you to listen carefully to what this guy says. This is kind of our launching off point for today's think along episode. Here we go. Here's the other night you were um, talking about um, God in the world and and how people have enjoyed your work because it's made a place for doubt, complexity, ambiguity. And I'm wondering if if this is something you're happy with. And, and then you went the other night at Baptist Theological Seminary and expanded on a little bit that um, the idea that how God is, um, how he exists, how we should live as God exists, and that our churches actually should be a place where we come and we can express and experience the doubt. The qu- okay, got to stop there. Listen carefully to what the, uh, Sackler here is saying. You know, she, this is kind of leading up to a question, and the thing that she's 
basically saying is is that uh, Peter Rollins is making the case uh, that the church should be a place where we can come and experience doubt. Uh, listen carefully. To, you know, I, I'm not making this up. I wish I was. Uh, here, here we go. Questioning the ambiguities. Could you could you expand on that some more? Yeah. Um, I guess whenever I not speak of God came out, I was concerned because I noticed that quite a few people said, oh, you know, enjoyed the book. I love this idea of doubt and I love that there's complexity and ambiguity and faith. And they really resonated with that. And then when I watched them, I realized that when they went to church, they actually sang songs that were full of certainty. That Yeah, you heard that right. He's bemoaning the fact that uh, people read his book and they, and, they, and they resonated with the idea of doubt. But yet when they go to church, they sing songs that sing about certainty that apparently that's wrong i i had no idea the sermons were all full of kind of conviction that the prayers and the liturgies were all these affirmations and so while they were on a personal subjective level saying oh yeah my my faith is riven with doubt their practices were all about still certainty um knowing and uh, certain triumphalism and this was kind of frustrating for me because my project, and this is what I'm working on at the moment. That would be project. He said project. I, I, apparently that's how they say it in Ireland. It's kind of to turn that on its head. So he has a project to turn things on its head. He doesn't want you going to church and experiencing in the liturgy things like certainty, assertion, and stuff like that. Instead, he wants to replace certainty, assertion, and triumphalism, things like that, with uncertainty and doubt. I'm not making this up. While I embrace doubt, complexity and ambiguity and faith, my point is not that that doubt should exist in our grounded day-to-day -day life and then we go to church and we express certainty. Rather, my argument is that in our day-to-day -to -day life, we should live as though God exists. We should fight for justice. We should fight for... So in our day-to-day -day lives, we have to basically act as if God exists, but... For our political and, and uh, goals, for freedom, for those who are oppressed, for those who are on their knees. We should be a voice to those who are voiceless. And actually, when we go to church, we should there, in that space, be able to explore our doubts and uncertainties. In other so in church, we should explore our doubts and our uncertainties. This guy is a highly regarded, much-loved thinker in the emergence movement. The words, church, the song shouldn't all be Jesus, my boyfriend. Um, some of the songs should be about uh, anger. By the way, I agree with him. There shouldn't be any songs about Jesus, my boyfriend, at all. But what does he say that we should have instead? God. Uh, some of them should be expressing doubts. Some of them should be expressing sorrow and pain and suffering. Um, and that should also be expressed in the sermons. It should also be expressed in the prayers and the liturgies. So instead of believing in church and not believing when it comes to living in the world, I'm trying to argue that we should be believing in the world and doubting when we go to church. <sighs> I don't have words to express just how stupid this is. How anybody would be buying this and think that this is what Christianity is about doesn't make a darn bit of sense to me at all. We read from Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain 
of what we do not see. Faith, according to the biblical definition, is the exact opposite, the exact opposite of what this guy is doing. Doubt does not equal biblical faith. In fact, doubt equals unbelief and lack of faith, and he's trying to redefine Christianity in such a way that when we come to church, we shouldn't be certain about anything. Unbelievable. <sighs> um, <clears throat> which kind of led me, if, by the way, if you're thinking along with me, which is what today's edition is. It's another one of those think-along um, episodes this reminded me of something that I read not too long ago in uh, Luther's work entitled The Bondage of the Will. In the opening chapter of that book, Luther addresses this issue with Erasmus. Now, I'm going to read to you a section from the book, um, The Bondage of the Will, written by Martin Luther. And um, the uh, the subheading of the chapter is Christianity involves assertions and Christians are no skeptics. Listen carefully. I want to begin by referring to some passages in your preface, he's talking to Erasmus, in which you rather disparage our case and puff up your own. I note, first, that just as in other books you censor me for obstinate assertiveness, so in this book you say that you are uh, so far from delighting in assertions that you would readily take refuge in the opinions of skeptics wherever it is allowed by the inviolable authority of the Holy Scriptures and the decrees of the Church, to which you always willingly submit your personal feelings whether you gr uh, grasp what it prescribes or not. This, you say, is the frame of mind that pleases you. It sounds like Erasmus was one of the early emergents. I take it as it is only fair to do that you say that these things you say these things in a kindly and peace loving spirit but if anyone else were to say them i would probably go for him in my usual manner and i ought not to allow even you excellent though your intentions are to uh, be led astray by this idea for it is not the mark of a christian mind to take no delight in assertions on the contrary a man must delight in assertions or he will be no christian and by assertion, in order that we may uh, may not be misled by words, I mean a constant adhering, affirming, confessing, maintaining, and an invincible persevering, nor, I think, does the word mean anything else either by the Latins or by us in our time. I'm speaking, moreover, about the assertion of those things which have been divinely transmitted to us in the sacred writings." Elsewhere, we have no need either of Erasmus or any other instructor to teach us that in matters which are doubtful or useless or unnecessary, assertions, disputings, and wranglings are not only foolish but impious, and Paul condemns them in more than one place. Nor are you, I think, speaking of such things in this place unless in the manner of some foolish orator you have chosen to announce one topic and discuss another, like the man with the, uh, with the turbot, or, the, or else with a craziness of some ungodly writer, you are contending that the article about free choice is doubtful and or unnecessary. Luther continues, he says, Let skeptics and academics keep well away from us Christians, but let there be among us asserters, twice as unyielding as the Stoics themselves. How often, I ask, does the Apostle Paul demand that um, uh, pleuroforia, as he terms it, that, that most 
sure and unyielding assertion of conscience. In Romans chapter 10, verse 10, he calls it confession, saying, with the mouth, uh, confession is made unto salvation. And Christ says, everyone who confesses me before men, I also will confess before my father. That's Matthew 10, 32. Peter bids uh, us give a reason for the hope that is within us. First Peter 3, 15. What need is there to dwell on this? Nothing is better known or more common among Christians than assertion. Take away assertions and you take away Christianity. Why the Holy Spirit is given them from heaven that he may glorify Christ in them and confess him even unto death, unless it is not asserting when one dies for one's confession and assertion. Moreover, the Spirit goes to such lengths in asserting that he takes the initiative and accuses the world of sin, according to John chapter 16, verse 8. If he would provoke a fight and Paul commands Timothy to exhort and be urgent out of season, uh, 2 Timothy uh, 4, 2, but what droll exhorter he would be, he who himself neither firmly believed nor consistently asserted the thing he was exhorting about, why I would send him to uh, Antichria. But it is I who am the biggest fool for wasting words and time on something that is clearer than daylight. What Christian would agree that assertions are be, are to be despised? That would be nothing but a denial of all religion and piety, or an assertion that neither religion nor piety nor any other dogma is of the slightest importance. Why then do you assert, I take no delight in assertions, that you prefer this frame of mind to its opposite? So here in the opening uh, uh, chapters of the book, The Bondage of the Will, Luther makes it very clear that skeptics and academics are to stay away from us Christians, and we are to be asserters, asserters who are certain and confess very specific things and that we should be un twice as unyielding as stoics themselves regarding the things that we're asserting and what is it that we christians assert we assert that christ is god in human flesh come to save the world by dying on the cross for our sins we confess and we assert that we are sinners in need of a savior and that jesus christ is our salvation that he died under pontius pilate rose again three days later from the from the grave in fact, the the Christian church is marked by very strong assertions. What else would you call uh, such wonderful things that have been handed down to us as the uh, Nicene Creed or the Apostles' Creed? Let me see if you can hear any doubts in uh, the Nicene Creed. The Nicene Creed states, I believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, earth and of all things visible and invisible. So when I go to church and we confess uh, the Nicene Creed, I'm asserting that I that there's only one God who is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and I'm, I'm confessing and asserting that there are things visible and invisible. And I also assert and confess that there's one Lord Jesus Christ who's the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, who is God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. 
he suffered and was buried, and on the third day he rose again according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven. And he sits at the right hand of the Father, and he will come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead, whose kingdom will have no end. I also assert and believe in the Holy Spirit, who is the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, and who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and is glorified, who spoke by the prophets, and I believe and assert in uh, assert uh, one holy Christian and apostolic church. I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. What is this confession of the Nicene Creed? Uh, it's nothing less than it's a continual list of assertions. In fact, it's a synopsis of the primary assertions of Scripture. And Scripture itself is God's word. So here we are in the middle of this bizarre, bizarre time in human history where what's being attacked is the ability to know at all and Faith is being redefined as doubt. And no longer are Christians ones who assert the great truths and doctrines of Scripture. Instead, they are to be the great doubters. And that's, in a cockeyed way, called being humble. And what is this other than just a plain attack against thought itself? Yet it is God who was the one who gave us thought. We continue with a little bit more of Peter Rollins and uh, Sackler here. And why do you think people who read your books, especially how not to speak of God, why are they, they're getting it, but then they're not? Listen, one of the names of his book is How Not to Speak of God. Why do I think that, uh, I haven't even read that particular book, I've been reading his Orthodox Heretic, uh, but why do I think that the, how we should not be speaking of God is exactly the way the Nicene Creed speaks of him? Not getting it. Why do you think that is? Yeah, I think, I mean, a part of the problem is how we conceive of God in the contemporary church and contemporary philosophy. Basically, God became an answer to our questions. Uh, very basically, uh, whenever we faced suffering or uncertainty or we were scared of what happened after death, uh, there was the answer was God, the answer was Jesus, and we went into churches. People would try. Wait a second. So it's wrong. It's wrong to ask the question, "What happens after death?" and to find the answer for that in the clear assertions and certainty provided for us in Scripture. Do you hear what's going on here? to say, you know, if you think that life is meaningless, you know, life has meaning, God is the meaning. Now, there are lots of problems with this. For one, it makes God into something that we use selfishly, you know. No, well, wait a second. So if, if I'm looking for an answer to why am I here, what, if I'm looking for the answer to what happens after death, if in searching for that answer, I discover that God is the answer. That means that somehow I'm selfish, being selfish about that, that about God. Is it not possible that if I find the answers to these questions in Scripture, that I can humbly say to God, thank you for answering that question and giving me certainty where I had doubt? Because what is Scripture? It is God's revelation about 
himself. The scriptures were not created because I had a selfish need. Instead, the scriptures were created because God loved us. He loves us and he's promised to save us. And he's revealed things about himself in this book, this library. I'm telling you, this is so what happens is, is that in their way of thinking, if, if you can say, hey, scripture says that after you die, that you're with the Lord, if you trust in him for your salvation, they could literally turn around and say, you know, it's really selfish and arrogant of you to be even talking like that, because now you've turned God into something that meets your personal needs. And that's really selfish of you to be thinking like that. I'm scared that there's 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 suffering in the world, and so I embrace God. I am scared that there's no meaning, so therefore I embrace God. And what happens is I embrace God not because I have been seduced or transformed, but simply because of what God can do. Oh man, this had, this is a straw man in a false dichotomy. Unbelievable. Um, there's the old story about two guys who are going to an Episcopal church, or going past an Episcopal church, and there's a big sign saying, uh, convert to Christianity and get $200. Now listen to this carefully, because what he's doing by telling this little story is he's using it to basically deconstruct why it is you became a Christian. How many of you listening to uh, this podcast became a Christian because you were offered money to become a Christian? I wasn't. I came kicking and screaming into the kingdom of God. Literally. And so they think this is brilliant. They go, right, we don't have any money. We want to go down to the pub, have a few drinks. So one of them says to the other, you go in, do the whole you know, conversion thing. Get the $200, we'll go and get a few drinks at the pub. So the other guy laughs, says, absolutely, no problems. Goes into the church. By half an hour later, he comes out, $200 in his back pocket. And his friend looks at him and says, did you get the money? And his other friend just, like, looks disapprovingly, puts his hand on the other guy's shoulder and says, is money all you non-Christians think about? <laughs> you know, um, the, the idea that, that you could go in selfishly wanting $200 and then be transformed? Of course not. So this is a false dichotomy. Who goes into church thinking they can get 200 bucks uh, without being transformed? What, uh, what are you talking about? And where is this... The, <clears throat> notice the subtle uh, gospel here, the gospel of transformation. i got a question for you, Peter. Isn't wanting to be transformed selfishness according to your own way of thinking? <clears throat> I detect a flaw in their thinking. If someone goes into a church and selfishly wants meaning, can they... Selfishly wants meaning. It's selfish of you to want meaning. Is selfishness the only possible, plausible uh, reason for why you would want to understand why you're here, what your life's for, what does it all mean? That's selfish? Oh, man, these are weird and dangerous categories. They'd be transformed by that, is that, or is that not God externally imposed as an answer to a question? And the problem is, what we do is we make God the answer to every question. You know the story of the... The minister, he's doing a children's address, and he says, what's brown, furry, eats nuts and climbs trees? The wee girl at the front puts her hands up and says, Mr. Mister, I know the answer's Jesus, but it sure sounds like a squirrel. You know, this is what we do. We make, we make all of the answers. The questions people have, the answer is Jesus. Yeah, that's why T.K. Chesterton says, every time a man knocks on the door of a brothel, he's looking for God. Mm. Now, 
That might be a nice quote, but it's no more true than the Freudian response, which we know every... Uh, taking Chesterton out of context. Oh, man. Every time a man knocks on the doors of a church, he's looking for sex. Mm. You know, who knows? But the point is, and the point, the point I'm trying to make is this, God becomes an intellectual answer to a question. And, and that's bad. That's bad. See, if God becomes an intellectual answer to your question, that's selfish. That's bad. But wait a second there, uh, dude. You've forgotten something there. And that is, is that Scripture does answer many of our questions about God. And these are not just mere, this is not just mere knowledge that we're striving for in, in trying to understand God, as if somehow there's going to be some great trivial pursuit challenge at the end of life. And if you can, uh, you can beat uh, a certain amount of people, then you're going to get greater rewards in heaven because of your trivial knowledge about God. Yeah, notice he's reduced. You wanting to know something about God to it being a selfish pursuit on your part because you just have a selfish intellectual question about God. Therefore, let's just chuck out all information. We don't need any assertions and certainty about God. And so let's gonna, In fact, it's selfish of you to want that, so let's replace it with doubt. And it happens in philosophy with Descartes and Kant as well. And then all Christianity is is a way of making us feel good that we'll, we're going to go to heaven when we die or that life makes sense and doesn't necessarily transform our inner existence, doesn't make us more into the way of Christ. What, my question for you, uh, Peter, would be, what is exactly that transforms us? According to Scripture, it's Christ who transforms us and he does that through the preaching of the gospel. Faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And it comes through our baptisms. And our baptisms were buried with Christ. We're raised with Christ. Our sins are washed away. Uh, all of these promises are attached to these things. Yet somehow I don't think you're going to go there. And when it's that only happens, a band-aid, would you say? It's like a band-aid? Yeah, it's, it, God becomes a guarantee that the world is meaningful. And that's why Nietzsche said God is dead. Because God becomes a guarantee that the world is meaningful. Isn't that backwards? Doesn't God in his word guarantee that life is meaningful in him? Notice how this cuts you off from the clear teachings of God's word. We're going to apply this to McLaren's song here in a minute, but let me finish out the balance of this uh, of this uh, soundbite here from uh, Peter Rollins. Your God has just become an idea. You're a, you're a practical unbeliever. You may be a theoretical believer. You believe in your head, but you don't believe in your life. You don't, you're no different from anybody else. It says, that God has no performative power. That God is nothing. That God is just an idea. And so what happens with that is we don't change. We live in the world as if everything's the same. You know, we're no different from anybody else. We, we're trying to be loving parents. We try to, you know, do well in our job. We try to get our promotions. But then we go to church. And in church, we affirm the certainty that everything's going to be okay. And that's apparently bad. We affirm the certainty uh, like in the Nicene Creed, that Christ will come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead, and whose kingdom will have no end. That's bad now. That's evil. That's selfish. And that's what needs to be changed. And it's such a big thing that it, it's, you know, it's a big project um, because our churches are so immersed in that kind of thinking. But the saint of this movement is someone like Mother Teresa. So uh, Mother Teresa is the patron saint of emergence thinking. Listen carefully. Now remember... 
Mother Teresa, as far as good works are concerned, absolutely stellar what she did in, in caring for the poor and snubbing the caste system in India. But what happened is, is after she died, we found out she was riddled with doubt as, doubt as to whether or not God even existed. Why? Because the law demands perfection, and she was fully aware of her sinfulness. Mother Teresa believed in her life, in her flesh. It was incarnated Christianity. And yet when she died, we realized that she was full of doubts, full of uncertainties, not sure if God was there. Yeah, that means that she didn't have faith in Christ. And so she was able to doubt at this level while believe at a grounded level. No, she doubted, she doubted, she doubted. Oh, boy. Now, faith equals doubt. Unbelievable. I mean, th this is, it's an attack against thought itself and against the very nature of what is in God's word. Let me read again, Hebrews 11.1. 1. Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. And without faith, it's impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. <sighs> We're up on our first break. Uh, again, this is a think-along version of uh, Fighting for the Faith. I apologize if, if uh, today's edition might seem a little bit disjointed, but stay with me. I, I guarantee you, it, it, you know, there'll be some resolution to all of this. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so at talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can look me up on Facebook. The address there is facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. Uh, my name there is Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Customer service. This is Josh. How can I help you today? Yes, I would like the return that Jesus I received from you. I heard there was a 60-day return policy. Yes, sir, there is. But can I ask you why you want to return Jesus? Well, I was told if I received Jesus, he'd fix all my problems. And quite honestly, I'm not satisfied with this Jesus. Sir, what is your Jesus doing right now? Nothing. He just sits there. Have you taken time to feed your Jesus? Well, I went to church for the preaching, but nothing has happened. Sir, if you read the fine print on the warranty, you'll see that you... 
you are responsible for feeding, not the church or the pastor. Oh, well, can I exchange this Jesus for another? Sir, what kind of Jesus are you looking for? I need the Jesus that forgives sins. You know, changes your life on the inside, helps you overcome the sins of the flesh, never leaves me nor forsakes me, and will take me to heaven when I die. Oh, I'm sorry, sir. We don't stock that Jesus here. You'll have to go somewhere else to have that Jesus. Well, I guess I'll just stick with the one I got since I already opened the box. Wonderful, sir. Can I interest you in getting Jesus for your friends and family? Why would I do that? Orthodox Christianity clearly teaches God's law, which condemns our sinful nature, and clearly proclaims the gospel of Christ's death and resurrection on our behalf to pay for our sinfulness. These truths of Holy Scripture are timeless and objective. However, a creeping fog known as the Emergent Church threatens to unravel these clear teachings by redefining the vocabulary and core beliefs of the Christian faith in terms of subjective personal feelings and experiences. That is why Pirate Christian Radio is proud to offer The Emergent Church, Undefining Christianity, a book by Bob DeWay that is widely regarded as the best book available on the Emergent Heresy. The book is $12.95 plus $4 shipping and handling, and all proceeds directly support the Christ-centered ministry of Pirate Christian Radio. Log on today to piratechristianradio.com and order your copy of The Emergent Church, Undefining Christianity. You are listening to Fighting for the Faith. Warning, this program will completely obliterate your doubt. If you think that faith is doubt, listening to this program will make you realize that faith is certainty. <laughs> You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, next segment here. Need to need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is uh, listener-supported. That means in order for us to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you, uh, we need your financial support. And uh, the the way this partnership works is is that uh, if you are learning and growing in your biblical discernment and uh, want to help help this program to reach not only you continually, but also to reach other people with this important discernment message as well as the gospel of Jesus Christ, uh, then uh, we need you to financially support us and partner with us. You can do that a couple of ways. You can visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com, and click on one of our friendly yellow donate buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, so we're today's a think-along uh, episode so we just heard Peter Rollins, uh, who is this uh, basically a rising rock star in emergence thinking, and uh, he's uh, well liked by men like Rob Bell, Brian McLaren, Phyllis Tickle. Um, uh, the the list goes on. And what is he doing? He's redefined faith as doubt, and he's a, basically said you're selfish if. If you're looking for answers to your, the meaning of your life, uh, hope after death, 
in, if you're looking for those answers and find them in God. That apparently, the, 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 it, but he's completely, Scripture completely contradicts this guy. Now, what's going on here is not an outright assault against thinking. Now, thinking back to things that we've reviewed here at Fighting for the Faith, this completely explains why uh, Brian McLaren can come up with this ridiculous marijuana throwback uh, LSD trip of a song, Mysterious Majesty. Let me replay this for you and listen carefully to what we're hearing here. Majestic mystery. We don't know anything about you. Oh, mysterious majesty. assertion in this song is is has to do with the assertion that I can't know you I can't my small hand can't grasp you We're, gone are the great truths of scripture I've received emails from people basically saying this sounds like a 1970s acid trip song. So this is this is this song completely reflects this emergent way of thinking that it's now humble to basically assert nothing about God and to confess and embrace your doubts as if that's what Christianity is. Nothing but a bunch of doubts. But they've got it 180 degrees backwards. This is nothing more than a complete attack against thought itself. It's using thought to attack thought. It's... Uh, <sighs> Oh man, it's a, it's using assertions to attack assertions. It's using what are they certain about? They're certain about doubt. Oh, it's unbelievable. Now this comes now kind of segueing here. This is not limited to the emergent movement. Come back to our Carrie Job song. Uh, the 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 more I seek you, the Jesus is my bearded girlfriend song. Listen to this one again. And this is just basic, somehow, you know, vacuous American spirituality in the form of Christianity. Is that a rain stick? I feel like I'm listening to the UFO channel. Just 
she's singing about she's singing about herself the more i seek you the more i find you the more i find you the more i love you i wanna i wanna assertions about God at all. None. This is erotic mysticism. It's absolute nothing. There's nothing here. Christianity has bought into the lie, not just an emergent Christianity, that somehow it's spiritual to proclaim nothing about God. just I'm gonna vomit I just okay now one more example here and I think you'll I've I'll probably have beat this one to death um listen to the opening to this particular song now this song does seem to assert some things about God but this is more like some kind of a it, it, for lack of a better way of putting it it's as if this is some kind of a chant designed to get you into an altered state of consciousness. Um, here we go. don't understand that she's repeating over and over and over again almost in a some again i feel like i'm being it's some kind of hypnotic thing you're designed to get you into an altered state of consciousness i can feel the rhythm of the lion of the tribe of judah i can hear the rhythm of, yeah. It, it, you know what this reminds me of? It, the evil people from uh, The Wizard of Oz. Oh, we, oh, oh, Which doctors sing like this? There is nothing there. 
from emergence uh, guru Brian McLaren to Carrie Job to whoever these people are, Misty Edwards or whatever her name is. What has happened? We have completely turned off the brains that God has given us. We are no longer proclaiming the great biblical truths that are revealed about God and Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit are one true God given to us in Scripture. We have exchanged, literally, we have exchanged gold for a rock. And we believe the rock is from God. Okay. It's one thing to complain. And it's one thing to point out the error. And that is not enough. It's just not enough. Folks, uh I told if you I told you at the beginning of the program and I tweeted it out and sent it out on Facebook and put it up at the website. I said you were going to need today's Fighting for the Faith hymnal. It's two hymns. I want you to compare what you heard Brian McLaren sing, what you heard Carrie Job sing, and what you're hearing Misty Edwards uh, chanting to real Christian hymns that proclaim and exalt our one true God and do it in certain, certain terms, clear terms, biblical terms. I, in fact, I want to teach you, if, if, if those of you who do not attend Lutheran churches, I want to teach you two very good Lutheran hymns, if you would. One of them is called Thy Strong Word, and the other one is, um, hang on a second, is Come, is Come Thou Almighty King. And what I'm going to do here is for the for Thy Strong Word, it's a little bit more complicated. It's not quite as straightforward. I'm going to take you through the lyrics and it, it take you through the song a little bit so that you can make yourself familiar with how the song goes. And then I'm going to literally, just for without any comments whatsoever, I'm going to play for you the music without any lyrics. And I challenge you, find a place where you can stop what you're doing and sing these hymns and i defy you to tell me you are not moved within your spirit by the clear biblical certain claims that are in these hymns about our mighty god and king and tell me that that isn't real deep and true worship of the one true God as he has revealed himself in scripture compared to this mindless, mindless, anti-thinking thing that has taken over Christianity. All right, the first hymn, again, this is the more complicated one, 
and requires me to actually uh, play it for you. The first hymn is called Thy Strong Word. Thy Strong Word. Hang on a second here. And now I, I have a recording of this, and this is not my favorite recording. Okay, however, it serves a purpose for today's podcast in that it will teach you how the song is sung. Let me, before we do that, though, um, let me read to you the 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 the, the lyrics for the song. First stanza: Thy strong word did cleave the darkness. It's going back to the book of Genesis. God said, "Let there be light," and there was light. Thy strong word did cleave the darkness. At thy speaking, it was done. For created light, we thank thee. While thine ordered seasons run. This first stanza takes us back into the book of Genesis itself. And in just a simple verse. We can thank God for the very light. The sun, the moon, the stars. And the fact that they they were put into place by God through his word. Let there be light. They were put in place for, for the for the seasons, for the controlling of the seasons and other things. And we sing, Alleluia, Alleluia, praise to thee who light dost send. Alleluia, Alleluia, without end. Lo on those who dwelt in darkness, dark as night and deep as death. Broke the light of thy salvation. Breathe thine own life-giving breath. Alleluia, Alleluia, praise to thee who light dost send. Alleluia, Alleluia, without end. Listen to this, forensic justification, verse 3. Thy strong word bespeaks us righteous, bright with thine own holiness. Glorious now we press toward glory, and our lives our hopes confess. Alleluia, alleluia, praise to thee who light descend. Alleluia, alleluia, without end. And then, here we've got this last stanza, stanza four, proclaiming the Holy Trinity himself. God the Father, light creator, to thee laud and honor be, be, to thee light of light begotten, praise be sun eternally. Holy Spirit, light revealer, glory, glory be to thee, mortals, angels, now and ever, praise the Holy Trinity. Okay, I'll take this any day from, I can feel the rhythm of the night, whatever. Anyway, let me familiarize you with the with the song itself. Again, this is not my favorite recording of it, but it serves the purpose of showing you how the song is sung. And if you have your hymn, hymnal with you from today's edition, you can download it. Um, follow along so that you can get a feel for how this goes. And then what I'm going to do is I'm going to play the hymn for you without stopping, with no lyrics. And I challenge you, find a plot, quiet place in, in your house or go to your car Bring the lyrics with you and sing this hymn. And tell me this isn't true worship of the King of Kings. So here's how the hymn goes. Thank you. 
Okay, I'm going to play one more one more verse, and then I'll go ahead and play the hymn itself all by itself. And again, I challenge you, sing this hymn. Find a place where you can belt it. Okay, now what I'm going to do is I've got a recording of this from a gal who uh, puts her, uh, she's a, a worship leader and an organist for a Lutheran church, and she puts her stuff up on YouTube. Now, this is going to be her version of it, and keep in mind, there's a pretty long intro before you actually sing along. But if, you, if, you, if it confuses you, stop the MP3 file and bring it back. And what I challenge you to do, the, think of this as hymn karaoke, if you would. And don't worry if you sound terrible. I, I am not somebody who sings in the choir myself, so I, that's why I'm not going to uh, torture you with my singing along. But this is a great, great hymn, and her arrangement of it is 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 really done well, and it and it just brings out the really brings out the lyrics in it. And what I challenge you to do again: find a quiet place, sing the hymn. Here's the music for it. And uh, it's about four minutes and 26 seconds long. And um, again, I'm not going to interrupt it. This is for your benefit. Sing along.
All right. So again, your homework. I know it's a little bit complicated, and she and she plays just a little bit fast, but that's okay. Sing this hymn. It's not about the style. It's not about style. This is about substance. This is about proclaiming and singing and praising God for who he is, how he's revealed himself, and what he's done. And singing it with faith and certainty and proclaiming and worshiping him for who he is. Oh, we're up on our second break. When we come back, we'll do one more hymn, and then we'll... Uh, it's not a sermon review today. We're going to be listening to G.K. Chesterton's uh, um, chapter from the book Orthodoxy on the Suicide of Thought. And uh, again, this is a think-along edition of Fighting for the Faith, so I apologize for being a little unorthodox in how we're doing the program today, and I hope you understand. If you'd like to email me, you can talk back at fightingforthefaith.com or look me up on Facebook or follow me on Twitter. My name there is Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Sissy, brainsy, turning, photo-written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. Orthodox Christianity clearly teaches God's law, which condemns our sinful nature, and clearly proclaims the gospel of Christ's death and resurrection on our behalf to pay for our sinfulness. These truths of Holy Scripture are timeless and objective. However, a creeping fog known as the Emergent Church threatens to unravel these clear teachings by redefining the vocabulary and core beliefs of the Christian faith in terms of subjective personal feelings and experiences. That is why Pirate Christian Radio is proud to offer The Emergent Church, Undefining Christianity, a book by Bob DeWay that is widely regarded as the best book available on the Emergent Heresy. The book is $12.95 plus $4 shipping and handling, and all proceeds directly support the Christ-centered ministry of Pirate Christian Radio. Log on today to piratechristianradio.com and order your copy of The Emergent Church, Undefining Christianity. All right, hour number two, Fighting for the Faith, straight ahead. Again, today's edition of Fighting for the Faith is a think-along, if you would. Kind of the premise is, is that uh, <clears throat> Americans 
well, not just American Christianity, but much of Christianity has basically assaulted the clear teachings of the Word of God and refused to worship God as He has revealed Himself. It's this crazy thing. And and so by way of kind of counterpoint today, uh, one of the things we're doing, aside from listening to G.K. Chesterton's uh, chapter from the book Orthodoxy called The Suicide of Thought, is I'm providing basically a counterbalance in the, in the sense of uh, reminding you, especially for those of you who don't worship in the liturgical church that does hymns or anything like that, uh, basically giving you a little bit of a primer here on um, on how Christian worship has been done in the past and the clear proclamations regarding God and the certainty offered in those hymns themselves. And uh, the first song, uh, the first hymn we looked at was a powerful hymn uh, entitled Thy Strong Word. And um, the second hymn we're going to be looking at today is, uh, I consider to be just a, <clears throat> a wonderful hymn, and it's probably an easier hymn to sing. And it's co- it, the name of the hymn is Come Thou Almighty King. And um, this one <clears throat> kind of doesn't really need too much um by way of help here, but the the, the hymn itself, real simple lyrics, lyrics are, Come thou, almighty king, help us thy name to sing. Help us to praise, Father all-glorious, over all-victorious, come and reign over us, ancient of days. Come thou, incarnate word, gird on thy mighty sword, our prayer attend. Come and thy people bless, and give thy word success. Establish thy righteousness, Savior and friend. Come... Holy Comforter, thy sacred witness bear in this glad hour. Thou who are almighty art, now rule in every heart, and never from us depart, spirit of power. To the great one and three, eternal praises be. Hence evermore, his sovereign majesty, may we in glory see, and to eternity, love and adore. Again, this is not about style. This is about substance. You know, those people who, who, you know, decades ago now basically sold us a bill of goods and basically said, uh, listen, it's, it, it doesn't matter what the style of worship is. Uh, what matters is the content of the, of the, of the songs is Christian. Well, that was all fine and good until they stopped. They, they removed all the Christian content, uh, from the so-called praise songs that are coming down the pike. And uh, re- replace them with these completely meaningless statements and this complete erotic mysticism and mystical concepts about God that assert nothing about Him. Because now, if everything's been redefined, where faith equals doubt, but that's not that's not that's, that's a satanic lie. Um, let, let me introduce you to the 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 song itself. <clears throat> Although I've, I I I will attempt not to. Uh, torture you. The singing this hymn is really easy. Here, listen, listen to the intro to it, and we'll kind of go from there. I'll try to kind of not torture you, but here we go. This is real simple. Come now, almighty King, help us thy name to sing. Help us to praise, 
Father all-glorious, or all-victorious, come and reign over us, ancient of days. All right, that, that, that's the song. Hang on a second here. So you, you get the, I apologize for having to sing that out, but I didn't have a, I didn't have a recorded version. So th- that's how the, the hymn goes. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to back up the music here. And again, what I challenge you to do is take this hymn, <clears throat> the lyrics that are provided in the fighting for the faith, uh, hymnal for the day and, um, find a p- quiet place and sing this. Not because hymns are so great or because organ music is like the only music that you can ever sing to God to. I'm not making any such claim. Instead, what I'm, regardless of the fact that this is sung, you know, that the music is carried by an organ, let these words become your words of praise to God. And notice the clarity and the substance that's, uh, that, that, that's being sung here in this hymn. And I defy you to tell me that what you heard from McLaren, what you heard from Carrie Job, what you heard from that other lady, you know, uh, the, the, the lion of Trinity, <clears throat> telling you this is Christian worship. Worship that engages both mind and heart, engages both spirit and mind. It is worship of God that is in spirit and in truth. That's what Jesus said. Contrary to what you heard Peter Rollins say, Jesus says, those who worship me will worship me in spirit and in truth. So here's the hymn, Come Thou Almighty King. Find the lyrics and sing along.
So there you have it. Come thou almighty king. And again, I defy anyone to really sing these songs, let these hymns, let what is being spoken, what is being proclaimed, what is being asserted, uh, what is about the one true God, and tell me they are not moved. Tell me that their whole being, mind and body and soul, isn't is, is, is engaged in this. That hymn, Come Thou Almighty King, uh, that, that's a that's a hymn that's usually usually sung at the beginning of a church service, and the last stanza itself it is one of the great traditions that is handed down to us from our forebears who've gone before us in the Christian faith is that when they would get to the last stanza, the last stanza because it proclaims the triune God Himself, people would actually stand up in honor of the triune God, the one who they were boldly and clearly asserting and proclaiming the object of their faith and the hope of their certainty. Mm. I'm telling you, Christianity has been sold a bill of goods. Satan has come into the church and told us that we can worship God by singing nothing about God, that we can have faith in God by having doubt. That, that we can think about God by refusing to think. That we would be humble by asserting nothing. And these are just crazy notions. We've bought the lie. What's the solution? It's time to go back. We've been lied to. We've got to go back. We've got to join with the Christians who've gone before us. And say, this experiment of ours was crazy. It was nuts and it failed. All we've ended up inheriting is a Christianity that isn't historical. A Christianity that asserts nothing. A Christianity that is mystical at best and tells me nothing about the one true God at worst. And go back, go back, go back and reclaim our Christian heritage and take our place alongside of God's saints from all generations, the generations that preceded us, and take our place and stand and hand down this sure and certain Christian faith to our children who will then take their place next to us and the entire communion of saints who preceded us in the faith. I apologize. Again, today's uh, edition of Fighting for the Faith is kind of a think-along episode. All right, we're up on our last segment for Fighting for the Faith today. And what we're going to be doing, rather than doing a sermon review, instead I'm going to be playing um, the chapter from G.K. Chesterton's book entitled Orthodoxy. Chesterton is a Brit, great thinker, 19th century, early 20th century uh, guy. And uh, he has a great chapter in there called The Suicide of Thought. And even though these words were penned a hundred years or more ago, they are absolutely as relevant today as the days that they were penned because the stuff he's talking about is the exact stuff that we're experiencing and fighting against now. It was called modernism back then. Now it's called, quote, postmodernism. But I don't think postmodernism, the way the... 
the emergence are, are calling it is really postmodernism. I, I think that's it's a misnomer. This is just modernism uh, dressed up in postmodern drag or a, a postmodern costume. But it's not really postmodernism. This is just mo- straight out modernism. And so this uh, chapter is entitled The Suicide of Thought. And uh, again, what I would recommend you do, find a comfortable place for this one. And listen, it's a little bit heady, and I will try not to interrupt unless I'm absolutely um, moved by the Spirit to do so, so that you can follow his train of thought. But listen very carefully to the things he says about certainty, about doubt, and about how thought is used and how reason is used to bash reason. It's very interesting. Here's G.K. Chesterton. The Suicide of Thought The phrases of the street are not only forcible, but subtle, for a figure of speech can often get into a crack too small for a definition. Phrases like put out or off colour might have been coined by Mr. Henry James in an agony of verbal precision, and there is no more subtle truth than that of the everyday phrase about a man having his heart in the right place. It involves the idea of normal proportion, Not only does a certain function exist, but it is rightly related to other functions. Indeed, the negation of this phrase would describe with peculiar accuracy the somewhat morbid mercy and perverse tenderness of the most representative moderns. If, for instance, I had to describe with fairness the character of Mr. Bernard Shaw, I could not express myself more exactly than by saying that he has a heroically large and generous heart but not a heart in the right place. And this is so of the typical society of our time. The modern world is not evil. In some ways the modern world is far too good. It is full of wild and wasted virtues. When a religious scheme is shattered, as Christianity was shattered at the Reformation, it is not merely the vices that are let loose. The vices are indeed let loose, and they wander and do damage, but the virtues are let loose also, and the virtues wander more wildly, and the virtues do more terrible damage. The modern world is full of the old Christian virtues gone mad. The virtues have gone mad because they have been isolated from each other and are wandering alone. Thus some scientists care for truth, and their truth is pitiless. Thus some humanitarians only care for pity, and their pity, I am sorry to say, is often untruthful. For example, Mr. Blatchford attacks Christianity because he is mad on one Christian virtue, the merely mystical and almost irrational virtue of charity. He has a strange idea that he will make it easier to forgive sins by saying that there are no sins to forgive. Mr. Blatchford is not only an early Christian, he is the only early Christian who ought really to have been eaten by lions. For in his case, the pagan accusation is really true. His mercy would mean mere anarchy. He really is the enemy of the human race, because he is so human. As the other extreme, we may take the acrid realist, who has deliberately killed in himself all human pleasure in happy tales or in the healing of the heart. Torquemada tortured people physically for the sake of moral truth. Zola tortured people morally for the sake of physical truth. But in Torquemada's time there was at least a system that could to some extent make righteousness and peace kiss each other. Now they do not even bow. 
But a much stronger case than these two of truth and pity can be found in the remarkable case of the dislocation of humility. It is only with one respect of humility that we are here concerned. Humility was largely meant as a restraint upon the arrogance and infinity of the appetite of man. He was always outstripping his mercies with his own newly invented needs. His very power of enjoyment destroyed half his joys. By asking for pleasure, he lost the chief pleasure, for the chief pleasure is surprise. Hence it became evident that if a man would make his world large, he must be always making himself small. For the haughty visions, the tall cities, and the toppling pinnacles are the creations of humility. Giants that tread down forests like grass are the creations of humility. Towers that vanish upwards above the loneliest star are the creations of humility. For towers are not tall unless we look up at them, and giants are not giants unless they are larger than we. All this gigantesque imagination, which is perhaps the mightiest of the pleasures of man, is at bottom entirely humble. It is impossible without humility to enjoy anything, even pride. But what we suffer from today is humility in the wrong place. Modesty has moved from the organ of ambition. Modesty has settled upon the organ of conviction, where it was never meant to be. A it, man was meant... Okay, I gotta, you got to listen carefully to this point here about modesty and how it's in the wrong place. And he wrote this a uh, long, long time ago. Listen carefully. ...to be doubtful about himself, but undoubting about the truth. This has been exactly reversed. Nowadays, the part of a man that a man does assert is exactly the part he ought not to assert himself. The part he doubts is exactly the part he ought not to doubt, the divine reason. Huxley preached a humility content to learn from nature, but the new skeptic is so humble that he doubts if he can even learn. Thus we should be wrong if we had said hastily that there is no humility typical of our time. The truth is that there is a real humility typical of our time, but it so happens that it is practically a more poisonous humility than the wildest prostrations of the ascetic. The old humility was a spur that prevented a man from stopping, not a nail in his boot that prevented him from going on. For the old humility made a man doubtful about his efforts, which might make him work harder. But the new humility makes a man doubtful about his aims, which will make him stop working altogether. At any street corner we may meet a man who utters the frantic and blasphemous statement that he may be wrong. Every day one comes across somebody who says that of course his view may not be the right one. Of course his view must be the right one, or it is not his view. We are on the road to producing a race of men too mentally modest to believe in the multiplication table. We are in danger of seeing philosophers who doubt the law of gravity as being a mere fancy of their own. Scoffers of old time were too proud to be convinced, but these are too humble to be convinced. The meek do inherit the earth, but the modern skeptics are too meek even to claim their inheritance. It is exactly this intellectual helplessness which is our second problem. The last chapter has been concerned only with a fact of observation that what peril of morbidity there is for man comes rather from his reason than his imagination. 
It was not meant to attack the authority of reason. Rather, it is the ultimate purpose to defend it, for it needs defense. The whole modern world is at war with reason, and the tower already reels. The sages, it is often said, can see no answer to the riddle of religion. But the trouble with our sages is not that they cannot see the answer. It is that they cannot even see the riddle. They are like children, so stupid as to notice nothing paradoxical in the playful assertion that a door is not a door. The modern latitudinarians speak, for instance, about authority in religion not only as if there were no reason in it, but as if there had never been any reason for it. Apart from seeing its philosophical basis, they cannot even see its historical cause. Religious authority has often, doubtless, been oppressive or unreasonable. Just as every legal system, and especially our present one, has been callous and full of a cruel apathy. It is rational to attack the police. Nay, it is glorious. But the modern critics of religious authority are like men who should attack the police without ever having heard of burglars. For there is a great and possible peril to the human mind, a peril as practical as burglary. Against it, religious authority was reared, rightly or wrongly, as a barrier. And against it, something certainly must be reared as a barrier, if our race is to avoid ruin. That peril is that the human intellect is free to destroy itself. Just as one generation could prevent the very existence of the next generation by all entering a monastery or jumping into the sea, so one set of thinkers can in some degree prevent further thinking by teaching the next generation that there is no validity in any human thought. It is idle to talk always of the alternative of reason and faith. Reason is itself a matter of faith. It is an act of faith to assert that our thoughts have any relation to reality at all. If you are merely a skeptic, you must sooner or later ask yourself the question, why should anything go right, even observation and deduction? Why should not good logic be as misleading as bad logic? They are both movements in the brain of a bewildered ape. The young skeptic says, I have a right to think for myself. But the old skeptic, the complete skeptic, says, I have no right to think for myself. I have no right to think at all. There is a thought that stops thought. That is the only thought that ought to be stopped. That is the ultimate evil against which all religious authority was aimed. It only appears at the end of decadent ages like our own, and already Mr. H. G. Wells has raised its ruinous banner. He has written a delicate piece of skepticism called Doubts of the Instrument. In this he questions the brain itself, and endeavors to remove all reality from all his own assertions, past, present, and to come. But it was against this remote ruin that all the military systems in religion were originally ranked and ruled. The creeds and the crusades, the hierarchies and the horrible persecutions were not organized, as is ignorantly said, for the suppression of reason. They were organized for the difficult defense of reason. Man, by a blind instinct, knew that if once things were wildly questioned, reason could be questioned first. The authority of priests to absolve, the authority of popes to define the authority, even of inquisitors to terrify, these were all only dark defences erected round one central authority, more undemonstrable, more supernatural than all, the authority of a man to think.
We know now that this is so. We have no excuse for not knowing it, for we can hear skepticism crashing through the old ring of authorities, and at the same moment we can see reason swaying upon her throne. In so far as religion is gone, reason is going, for they are both of the same primary and authoritative kind. They are both methods of proof which cannot themselves be proved, and in the act of destroying the idea of divine authority, we have largely destroyed the idea of that human authority by which we do a long division sum. With a long and sustained tug we have attempted to pull the mitre off pontifical man, and his head has come off with it. Lest this should be called loose assertion, it is perhaps desirable, though dull, to run rapidly through the chief modern fashions of thought which have this effect of stopping thought itself. Materialism and the view of everything as a personal illusion have some such effect. For if the mind is mechanical, thought cannot be very exciting, and if the cosmos is unreal, there is nothing to think about. But in these cases the effect is indirect and doubtful. In some cases it is direct and clear, notably in the case of what is generally called evolution. Evolution is a good example of that modern intelligence which, if it destroys anything, destroys itself. Evolution is either an innocent scientific description of how certain earthly things came about, or, if it is anything more than this, it is an attack upon thought itself. If evolution destroys anything, it does not destroy religion, but rationalism. If evolution simply means that a positive thing called an ape turned very slowly into a positive thing called a man, then it is stingless for the most orthodox, for a personal god might just as well do things slowly as quickly, especially if, like the Christian god, he were outside time. But if it means anything more, if it means that there is no such thing as an ape to change, and no such thing as a man for him to change into, it means that there is no such thing as a thing. At best, there is only one thing, and that is a flux of everything and anything. This is an attack, not upon the faith, but upon the mind. You cannot think if there are no things to think about. You cannot think if you are not separate from the subject of thought. Descartes said, I think, therefore I am. The philosophic evolutionist reverses and negatives the epigram. He says, I am not, therefore I cannot think. Then there is the opposite attack on thought, that urged by Mr. H. G. Wells when he insists that every separate thing is unique, and there are no categories at all. This also is merely destructive. Thinking means connecting things and stops if they cannot be connected. It need hardly be said that this skepticism forbidding thought necessarily forbids speech. A man cannot open his mouth without contradicting it. Thus, when Mr. Wells says, as he did somewhere, all chairs are quite different, he utters not merely a misstatement, but a contradiction in terms. If all chairs were quite different, you could not call them all chairs. Akin to these is the false theory of progress, which maintains that we alter the test instead of trying to pass the test. We often hear it said, for instance, what is right in one age is wrong in another. This is quite reasonable, if it means that there is a fixed aim, and that certain methods attain at certain times and not at other times. If women, say, desire to be elegant, it may be that they are improved at one time by growing fatter, and at another time by growing thinner. 
but you cannot say that they are improved by ceasing to wish to be elegant and beginning to wish to be oblong. If the standard changes, how can there be improvement, which implies a standard? Nietzsche started a nonsensical idea that men had once sought as good what we now call evil. If it were so, we could not talk of surpassing or even falling short of them. How can you overtake Jones if you walk in the other direction? You cannot discuss whether one people has succeeded more in being miserable than another succeeded in being happy. It would be like discussing whether Milton was more puritanical than a pig is fat. It is true that a man, a silly man, might make change itself his object or ideal. But as an ideal, change itself becomes unchangeable. If the change-worshipper wishes to estimate his own progress, he must be sternly loyal to the ideal of change. He must not begin to flirt gaily with the ideal of monotony. Progress itself cannot progress. It is worth remark in passing that when Tennyson, in a wild and rather weak manner, welcomed the idea of infinite alteration in society, he instinctively took a metaphor which suggests an imprisoned tedium. He wrote, Let the great world spin forever down the ringing grooves of change. He thought of change itself as an unchangeable groove, and so it is. Change is about the narrowest and hardest groove that a man can get into. The main point here, however, is that this idea of a fundamental alteration in the standard is one of the things that make thought about the past or future simply impossible. The theory of a complete change of standards in human history does not merely deprive us of the pleasure of honouring our fathers. It deprives us even of the more modern and aristocratic pleasure of despising them. This bald summary of the thought-destroying forces of our time would not be complete without some reference to pragmatism. For though I have here used and should everywhere defend the pragmatist method as a preliminary guide to truth, there is an extreme application of it which involves the absence of all truth whatever. My meaning can be put shortly thus. I agree with the pragmatists that apparent objective truth is not the whole matter, that there is an authoritative need to believe the things that are necessary to the human mind. But I say that one of those necessities precisely is a belief in objective truth. The pragmatist tells a man to think what he must think, and never mind the absolute. But precisely one of the things that he must think is the absolute. This philosophy, indeed, is a kind of verbal paradox. Pragmatism is a matter of human needs, and one of the first of human needs is to be something more than a pragmatist. Extreme pragmatism is just as inhuman as the determinism it so powerfully attacks. The determinist, who to do him justice does not pretend to be a human being, makes nonsense of the human sense of actual choice. The pragmatist, who professes to be especially human, makes nonsense of the human sense of actual fact. To sum up our contention so far, we may say that the most characteristic current philosophies have not only a touch of mania, but a touch of suicidal mania. The mere questioner has knocked his head against the limits of human thought, and cracked it. This is what makes so futile the warnings of the orthodox and the boasts of the advanced about the dangerous boyhood of free thought. What we are looking at is not the boyhood of free thought, it is the old age and ultimate dissolution of free thought. It is vain for bishops and pious bigwigs to discuss what dreadful things will happen if wild scepticism runs its course. It has run its course. 
It is vain for eloquent atheists to talk of the great truths that will be revealed if once we see free thought begin. We have seen it end. It has no more questions to ask. It has questioned itself. You cannot call up any wilder vision than a city in which men ask themselves if they have any selves. You cannot fancy a more sceptical world than that in which men doubt if there is a world. It might certainly have reached its bankruptcy more quickly and cleanly if it had not been feebly hampered by the application of indefensible laws of blasphemy or by the absurd pretense that modern England is Christian. But it would have reached the bankruptcy anyhow. Militant atheists are still unjustly persecuted, but rather because they are an old minority than because they are a new one. Free thought has exhausted its own freedom. It is weary of its own success. If any eager free thinker now hails philosophic freedom as the dawn, he is only like the man in Mark Twain who came out wrapped in blankets to see the sun rise and was just in time to see it set. If any frightened curate still says that it will be awful if the darkness of free thought should spread, we can only answer him in the high and powerful words of Mr. Belloc. Do not, I beseech you, be troubled about the increase of forces already in dissolution. You have mistaken the hour of the night. It is already morning. We have no more questions left to ask. We have looked for questions in the darkest corners and on the wildest peaks. We have found all the questions that can be found. It is time we gave up looking for questions and began looking for answers. But one more word must be added. At the beginning of this preliminary negative sketch, I said that our mental ruin has been wrought by wild reason, not by wild imagination. A man does not go mad because he makes a statue a mile high, but he may go mad by thinking it out in square inches. Now, one school of thinkers has seen this and jumped at it as a way of renewing the pagan health of the world. They see that reason destroys, but will, they say, creates. The ultimate authority, they say, is in will, not in reason. The supreme point is not why a man demands a thing, but the fact that he does demand it. I have no space to trace or expound this philosophy of will. It came, I suppose, through Nietzsche, who preached something that is called egoism. That, indeed, was simple-minded enough, for Nietzsche denied egoism simply by preaching it. To preach anything is to give it away. First, the egoist calls life a war without mercy, and then he takes the greatest possible trouble to drill his enemies in war. To preach egoism is to practice altruism, but however it began, the view is common enough in current literature. The main defense of these thinkers is that they are not thinkers, they are makers. They say that choice is itself the divine thing. Thus, Mr. Bernard Shaw has attacked the old idea that men's acts are to be judged by the standard of the desire of happiness. He says that a man does not act for his happiness, but from his will. He does not say, jam will make me happy, but I want jam. And in all this, others follow him with yet greater enthusiasm. Mr. John Davidson, a remarkable poet, is so passionately excited about it that he is obliged to write prose. He publishes a short play with several long prefaces. This is natural enough in Mr. Shaw, for all his plays are prefaces. Mr. Shaw is, I suspect, the only man on earth who has never written any poetry. 
but that Mr. Davidson, who can write excellent poetry, should write instead laborious metaphysics in defence of this doctrine of will, does show that the doctrine of will has taken hold of men. Even Mr. H. G. Wells has half spoken in its language, saying that one should test acts not like a thinker, but like an artist, saying, I feel this curve is right, or that line shall go thus. They are all excited, and well they may be, for by this doctrine of the divine authority of will they think they can break out of the doomed fortress of rationalism. They think they can escape. But they cannot escape. This pure praise of volition ends in the same break-up and blank as the mere pursuit of logic. Exactly as complete free thought involves the doubting of thought itself, so the acceptation of mere willing really paralyzes the will. Mr. Bernard Shaw has not perceived the real difference between the old utilitarian test of pleasure, clumsy, of course, and easily misstated, and that which he propounds. The real difference between the test of happiness and the test of will is simply that the test of happiness is a test, and the other isn't. You can discuss whether a man's act in jumping over a cliff was directed towards happiness. You cannot discuss whether it was derived from will. Of course it was. You can praise an action by saying that it is calculated to bring pleasure or pain, to discover truth or to save the soul, but you cannot praise an action because it shows will. For to say that is merely to say that it is an action. By this praise of will, you cannot really choose one course as better than another. And yet choosing one course as better than another is the very definition of the will you are praising. The worship of will is the negation of will. To admire mere choice is to refuse to choose. If Mr. Bernard Shaw comes up to me and says, Will something, that is tantamount to saying, I do not mind what you will and that is tantamount to saying, I have no will in the matter. You cannot admire will in general, because the essence of will is that it is particular. A brilliant anarchist like Mr. John Davidson feels an irritation against ordinary morality, and therefore he invokes will, will to anything. He only wants humanity to want something. But humanity does want something. It wants ordinary morality. He rebels against the law and tells us to will something or anything. But we have willed something. We have willed the law against which he rebels. All the will-worshippers from Nietzsche to Mr. Davidson are really quite empty of volition. They cannot will, they can hardly wish. And if anyone wants a proof of this, it can be found easily. It can be found in this fact that they always talk of will as something that expands and breaks out, but it is quite the opposite. Every act of will is an act of self-limitation. To desire action is to desire limitation. In that sense, every act is an act of self-sacrifice. When you choose anything, you reject everything else. That objection, which men of this school used to make to the act of marriage, is really an objection to every act. Every act is an irrevocable selection exclusion. Just as when you marry one woman, you give up all the others. So, when you take one course of action, you give up all the other courses. If you become King of England, you give up the post of Beadle in Brompton. If you go to Rome, you sacrifice a rich, suggestive life in Wimbledon. It is the existence of this negative or limiting side of will that makes most of the talk of the anarchic will-worshippers little better than nonsense. For instance, 
Mr. John Davidson tells us to have nothing to do with Thou shalt not. But it is surely obvious that Thou shalt not is only one of the necessary corollaries of I will. I will go to the Lord Mayor's show, and Thou shalt not stop me. Anarchism adjures us to be bold, creative artists, and care for no laws or limits. But it is impossible to be an artist and not care for laws and limits. Art is limitation. The essence of every picture is the frame. If you draw a giraffe, you must draw him with a long neck. If, in your bold, creative way, you hold yourself free to draw a giraffe with a short neck, you will really find that you are not free to draw a giraffe. The moment you step into the world of facts, you step into a world of limits. You can free things from alien or accidental laws, but not from the laws of their own nature. You may, if you like, free a tiger from his bars, but do not free him from his stripes. Do not free a camel of the burden of his hump. You may be freeing him from being a camel. Do not go about as a demagogue, encouraging triangles to break out of the prison of their three sides. If a triangle breaks out of its three sides, its life comes to a lamentable end. Somebody wrote a work called The Loves of the Triangles. I never read it, but I am sure that if triangles ever were loved, they were loved for being triangular. This is certainly the case with all artistic creation, which is in some ways the most decisive example of pure will. The artist loves his limitations. They constitute the thing he is doing. The painter is glad that the canvas is flat. The sculptor is glad that the clay is colourless. In case the point is not clear, an historic example may illustrate it. The French Revolution was really an heroic and decisive thing, because the Jacobins willed something definite and limited. They desired the freedoms of democracy, but also all the vetoes of democracy. They wished to have votes and not to have titles. Republicanism had an ascetic side in Franklin or Robespierre, as well as an expansive side in Danton or Wilkes. Therefore they have created something with a solid substance and shape, the square social equality and peasant wealth of France. But since then the revolutionary or speculative mind of Europe has been weakened by shrinking from any proposal because of the limits of that proposal. Liberalism has been degraded into liberality. Men have tried to turn revolutionize from a transitive to an intransitive verb. The Jacobin could tell you not only the system he would rebel against, but, what was more important, the system he would not rebel against, the system he would trust. But the new rebel is a skeptic and will not entirely trust anything. He has no loyalty, therefore he can never be really a revolutionist. And the fact that he doubts everything really gets in his way when he wants to denounce anything. For all denunciation implies a moral doctrine of some kind, and the modern revolutionist doubts not only the institution he denounces, but the doctrine by which he denounces it. Thus he writes one book complaining that imperial oppression insults the purity of women, and then he writes another book about the sex problem in which he insults it himself. He curses the Sultan because Christian girls lose their virginity, and then curses Mrs. Grundy because they keep it. As a politician he will cry out that war is a waste of life, and then, as a philosopher, that all life is waste of time. 
A Russian pessimist will denounce a policeman for killing a peasant, and then prove by the highest philosophical principles that the peasant ought to have killed himself. A man denounces marriage as a lie, and then denounces aristocratic profligates for treating it as a lie. He calls a flag a bauble, and then blames the oppressors of Poland or Ireland because they take away that bauble. The man of this school goes first to a political meeting where he complains that savages are treated as if they were beasts, then he takes his hat and umbrella and goes on to a scientific meeting where he proves that they practically are beasts. In short, the modern revolutionist, being an infinite sceptic, is always engaged in undermining his own minds. In his book on politics, he attacks men for trampling on morality. In his book on ethics, he attacks morality for trampling on men. Therefore, the modern man in revolt has become practically useless for all purposes of revolt. By rebelling against everything, he has lost his right to rebel against anything. It may be added that the same blank and bankruptcy can be observed in all fierce and terrible types of literature, especially in satire. Satire may be mad and anarchic, but it presupposes an admitted superiority in certain things over others. It presupposes a standard. When little boys in the street laugh at the fatness of some distinguished journalist, they are unconsciously assuming a standard of Greek sculpture. They are appealing to the marble Apollo. And the curious disappearance of satire from our literature is an instance of the fierce things fading for want of any principle to be fierce about. Nietzsche had some natural talent for sarcasm. He could sneer, though he could not laugh. But there is always something bodiless and without weight in his satire, simply because it has not any mass of common morality behind it. He is himself more preposterous than anything he denounces. But, indeed, Nietzsche will stand very well as the type of the whole of this failure of abstract violence. The softening of the brain which ultimately overtook him was not a physical accident. If Nietzsche had not ended in imbecility, Nietzscheism would end in imbecility. Thinking in isolation and with pride ends in being an idiot. Every man who will not have softening of the heart must at last have softening of the brain. This last attempt to evade intellectualism ends in intellectualism, and therefore in death. The sortie has failed. The wild worship of lawlessness and the materialist worship of law end in the same void. Nietzsche scales staggering mountains, but he turns up ultimately in Tibet. He sits down beside Tolstoy in the land of nothing and nirvana. They are both helpless, one because he must not grasp anything, and the other because he must not let go of anything. The Tolstoyan's will is frozen by a Buddhist instinct that all special actions are evil. But the Nietzscheite's will is quite equally frozen by his view that all special actions are good. For if all special actions are good, none of them are special. They stand at the crossroads, and one hates all the roads, and the other likes all the roads. The result is... Well, some things are not hard to calculate. They stand at the crossroads. Here I end, thank God, the first and dullest business of this book, the rough review of recent thought. After this, I begin to sketch a view of life which may not interest my reader, but which at any rate interests me. In front of me, as I close this page, 
is a pile of modern books that I have been turning over for the purpose, a pile of ingenuity, a pile of futility. By the accident of my present detachment, I can see the inevitable smash of the philosophies of Schopenhauer and Tolstoy, Nietzsche and Shaw, as clearly as an inevitable raft-way smash could be seen from a balloon. They are all on the road to the emptiness of the asylum. For madness may be defined as using mental activity so as to reach mental helplessness, and they have nearly reached it. He who thinks he is made of glass thinks to the destruction of thought, for glass cannot think. So he who wills to reject nothing wills the destruction of will, for will is not only the choice of something, but the rejection of almost everything. And as I turn and tumble over the clever, wonderful, tiresome and useless modern books, the tide of one of them rivets my eye. It is called Jeanne d'Arc by Anatole France. I have only glanced at it, but a glance was enough to remind me of Renan's Vie de Jesus. It has the same strange method of reverent sceptic. It discredits supernatural stories that have some foundation, simply by telling natural stories that have no foundation. Because we cannot believe in what a saint did, we are to pretend that we know exactly what he felt. But I do not mention either book in order to criticize it, but because the accidental combination of the names called up two startling images of sanity which blasted all the books before me. Joan of Arc was not stuck at the crossroads either by rejecting all the paths like Tolstoy or by accepting them all like Nietzsche. She chose a path and went down it like a thunderbolt. Yet Joan, when I came to think of her, had in her all that was true either in Tolstoy or Nietzsche, all that was even tolerable in either of them. I thought of all that is noble in Tolstoy, the pleasure in plain things, especially in plain pity, the actualities of the earth, the reverence for the poor, the dignity of the bowed back. Joan of Arc had all that, and with this great addition that she endured poverty as well as admiring it, whereas Tolstoy is only a typical aristocrat trying to find out its secret. And then I thought of all that was brave and proud and pathetic in poor Nietzsche, and his mutiny against the emptiness and timidity of our time. I thought of his cry for the ecstatic equilibrium of danger, his hunger for the rush of great horses, his cry to arms. Well, Joan of Arc had all that, and again with this difference, that she did not praise fighting, but fought. We know that she was not afraid of an enemy, while Nietzsche, for all we know, was afraid of a cow. Tolstoy only praised the peasant, she was the peasant. Nietzsche only praised the warrior, she was the warrior. She beat them both at their own antagonistic ideals. She was more gentle than the one, more violent than the other. Yet she was a perfectly practical person who did something, while they are wild speculators who do nothing. It was impossible that the thought should not cross my mind that she and her faith had perhaps some secret of moral unity and utility that has been lost. And with that thought came a larger one, and the colossal figure of her master had also crossed the theatre of my thoughts. The same modern difficulty which darkened the subject matter of Anatole France also darkened that of Ernest Renan. Renan also divided his hero's pity from his hero's pugnacity, Renan also represented the righteous anger at Jerusalem as a mere nervous breakdown after the idyllic expectations of Galilee. 
as if there were any inconsistency between having a love for humanity and having a hatred for inhumanity. Altruists, with thin, weak voices, denounce Christ as an egoist. Egoists, with even thinner and weaker voices, denounce him as an altruist. In our present atmosphere, such cavils are comprehensible enough. The love of a hero is more terrible than the hatred of a tyrant. The hatred of a hero is more generous than the love of a philanthropist. There is a huge and heroic sanity of which moderns can only collect the fragments. There is a giant of whom we see only the lopped arms and legs walking about. They have torn the soul of Christ into silly strips, labelled egoism and altruism, and they are equally puzzled by his insane magnificence and his insane meekness. They have parted his garments among them, and for his vesture they have cast lots, though the coat was without seam woven from the top throughout. All right, so there is um, Chesterton's chapter on the suicide of thought. And the reason I played it, although, you know, for we 21st century Western Americans, and I don't, I think the Brits have, you know, I don't know what their education system is like. If it's as lamentable as the public education system here in the United States, then some of this may have gone over people's heads. But the gist of it is this. What McLaren, Rollins, and these so-called postmoderns are doing they're using thought to destroy thought. They're using reason to destroy reason. And what are they replacing it with? Mindlessness and uncertainty and doubt. This is not Christianity. This is just pure folly. And it's suicidal. It, it, you cut people off from the brain that God has given them, and what have you done? You've created a bunch of imbeciles who will take any, will basically believe anything, and they end up in hell. And yet Christianity, biblical Christianity, calls us to assert very specific truths that were revealed by the one true God, and to embrace them to the exclusion of, of their opposites or competing thoughts. We are to assert boldly. We are to assert even to the point of offending other people because these are truths that cannot be undone. This is the path to sanity. The other path, I hate to say it, is exactly this, this exact suicide of thought is exactly this, the type of philosophies that led to the great murderous philosophies and, and, and political systems of the, 20, of the 20th century. You stop thinking? It is just a matter of time before somebody like Hitler or worse arises, and nobody will stop them. Why? Because they've been taught to embrace everything and and uh, question everything and and not believe anything and to doubt, that's faith according to them. 
Oh boy. Uh, anyway, I apologize. Uh, today's edition, I understand, completely unorthodox in the way I do things. But from time to time, you know, I, I've got to, I've got to think out loud through things. And I would love your feedback on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith, if for no other reason than to, uh, to at least get some feedback to help me realize or unrealize that, that I'm on the right track or that I'm not on the right track. So we're, we're rapidly approaching the end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith. And I need to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That's right. Um, your financial support makes it possible for us to continue bringing this program to you as well as to other people. Don't believe me? Don't Don't provide. I guarantee you that when we run out of money, we will no longer be here. That's how things work. Anyway, it's it. you can support us a couple of ways. You can visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com, and clicking on one of our friendly yellow donate buttons, or you may uh, send your gift uh, to Fighting for the Faith um, and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so at talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can look me up on Facebook or follow me on Twitter. Until tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ in his vicarious death on the cross for your sins. You can trust this. You can assert it. It is certain and true. Doubting it sends you to hell. Amen. Amen.